dismiss our kiddos to the back, and as they're headed back there, who are they following today? Let's see who's back there. Okay, the McDonald's. As they're headed back there, I'd invite you to open your Bibles, if you brought one with you, to the book of James. James, the uh, book after uh, Hebrews, towards the end of the New Testament. James, as you might recall, uh, was the half-brother of Jesus. We know of James's life that he did not believe in Jesus while he was here, and yet um, Jesus made a special appearance to James after the resurrection in that 40-day period that he was here on the earth making appearances to his disciples and followers. Um, Corinthians tells us that he made a very special visit to, to James, and um, whatever happened in that meeting... Um, James becomes a leader of the early church, as we see in the book of Acts. I've said before that uh, James just gets right to the point, and uh, this this might be the um, straightest to the point in our passage today that that we see in what he does. We're going to be in verses 11 through 18. But to give you just a little recap of kind of what he's doing here, he is writing to uh, the dispersed church um, that is meeting in little pockets and in homes and in caves as they have fled, many of them have fled, the persecution um, of Rome. And in here, it's, uh, we've named this, uh, this series of Faith That Works because it is a series of tests, not pass-fail test, like it's an algebra pop quiz um, that comes with a grade, but more a diagnostic test so that you could test the genuineness of your faith. I don't know if you saw social media this weekend, but evidently Kanye is now a Christian. And for those of you who don't know who he is, that's okay. Um, uh, he was a, I don't know, a media mogul, rap star, has been in the news for a lot of different things. And with him, like many other people who have this dramatic um, coming to faith thing, we will see by his works and his life, right, if his faith is genuine. And I think we should support him. It is just like God to take people who are headed in one direction and have this road to Damascus Saul to Paul type experience, and maybe that's happening even here. But this is, the, it's to that, even, even to that context that James is writing, that we would all, not collectively, but individually, run a diagnostic test on our faith to see if this is just some cultural game that we're playing or if we have genuinely been transformed, right, by the person of Jesus, the Holy Spirit now within us, leading us, convicting us, conforming us into that image of Jesus himself. This diagnostic test, if you went to the doctor because you feel some strange pain in your knee or your back or your gut, which seems to happen a lot more to me the older I get these strange pains, you go to the doctor and he runs a bunch of tests and he comes back into the room and he, with this serious look on his face, looks at you and says, well, you know what, I've got some, I've got some bad news. Your body's broken. You're like, well, Doc, I knew that. That's why I came in here. What's the answer? What's the, what's the treatment plan? The same thing about a mechanic. If you were to go into an auto mechanic, hey, my brakes are making a funny noise, true story. But uh, for the mechanic to only tell you, you know what, Luke, your car's broken. Okay, I knew that. That's why I came in here. You go so that they would run a diagnostic test and give you a treatment plan. And in essence, that's what James is doing. This is not a pass-fail kind of thing. This is like a, hey, I want you to run your faith through this test to test its genuineness that would be an encouragement to you, ultimately, that God is working, or it'd be a warning to you that you've just adopted some kind of cultural thing and you've never fully wrapped your arms around this idea about faith in Jesus. So that's what this entire book of James has been so far. We're going through it in themes. James is a letter written by uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, to these early churches, and it was meant to be read, right, in, in one sitting. So he hits these different themes, and we've talked about the theme of suffering, 
How do we handle suffering? Well, if you expect life to be all roses and comfort, then certainly you're going to be discouraged in life. But if you're assured that God can take difficulty and suffering and even temptation and use it for your good to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ, the way that God has designed you to be anyway, well then when you encounter suffering, you know that Jesus is close and he's using it to mold you into the image of himself. Well, then you can endure it with joy. Does that make sense? So you don't have this false perception of what it could be. We're looking at this idea of wisdom right now, last week and, and, and today. Last week we talked about God's word, not just listening to it. The diagnostic test here is if you listen to the word but don't obey it, then there's something wrong with your faith. Here's the warning, he says in verse 26 of chapter 1. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Jesus said the same thing, that what's in your heart will come out of your mouth. Meaning, you can't just go off spouting your own opinion all the time. Just because something makes you angry doesn't mean it makes God angry. And a lot of things that we put up with, even enjoy, are things that make God angry. That's why we have to have his source, his word, with his wisdom to know how we're supposed to live this life. That's why we receive the word and we humble with humility and we apply it. So the diagnostic test we face today in James is this, do you have true wisdom? You know, most people think that they're wise. Most people think they have good opinions. That's why they plaster them all over social media. Most millennials think that their opinions are right. That's what the rays of uh, blogging and everyone just kind of expressing our opinion because we want you to know it and we feel like it's the right one, I got a speeding ticket in college, and like many, I was told that if I went and took defensive driving class all day long, that it wouldn't go on my insurance. And so I showed up at defensive driving, just ready to get this over with, and it was actually a pretty good class. I learned a lot in it. Um, but the lecturer, the guy leading the class, started out with this statement, no one thinks they're a bad driver. And I thought, well, surely that's not true, because there was a lot of bad drivers, especially those people when they hit the yield sign and they stop. Um, that's not what you're supposed to do on a yield sign. You're supposed to yield, not just, not, it's not a stop sign. Anyway, um, maybe that would help your driving. Um, surely not everyone thinks they're a good driver, I started asking people around that I knew were bad drivers, and they did say, you know what, I feel like I'm a good driver. I've had eight wrecks. Um, I back into things all the time, but I feel like I'm a good driver. And I think the same thing goes here with wisdom. Everybody thinks that they're wise, most people. So James aims straight ahead and gives us another diagnostic test. Read it with me. In uh, chapter 3, verse 13. This is God's word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Well, just tell us what you think, James. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Will you pray with me, please? God, as we read your word, I pray that we would humble ourselves before it. We would let it read us more than we read it. Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction of sin where we've gone away, off the path? Will you bring encouragement to hearts that are weary? Will you shine the spotlight on the face of Jesus this morning that we would see him in all of his majesty and we would with joy submit to his leadership as he shepherds our souls in Jesus' name, amen. 
So it's kind of two thoughts here and a lot of things under each one. And I want to just kind of, we'll just work through them in verse 13. The first, verse 13, the first thought is, if you say you have wisdom, then prove it with your life. He says in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. There's a danger in the church of the first century and certainly in our church culture today and in our actual church today where we have unlimited to teaching, access to teaching and study and commentary in the word of God. We have blogs that we we read, we've got podcasts that we listen to. We can actually be discipled by many other people who are great orators of the word of God. But with all of that commentary Many might think that we are spiritually wise when we're not because we just have so much biblical knowledge. But biblical knowledge does not lead to obedience and action. It leads to us becoming spiritually obese. So many in the church are so spiritually bloated, right, that we can't see our feet. We get to this place to where we've learned, 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 and crammed so many things into our head Yet we're not willing to live them out in obedience to Jesus, not in some radical level, but in just the very basic level of following Jesus. Reminds me of the rich young ruler, right? When he came to Jesus and asked about eternal life, and Jesus gave him a very basic kind of understanding, well, what, is, what, is the, what does the commandment say? And he spoke those out. He was very understanding of the law of God, of the Torah, likely as a good Jewish boy, had probably memorized that as a young kid. He understood it, yet he was unwilling to take a step of obedience and actually follow Jesus. Something else had his heart. And then we live in a culture today where some... Old statistics, 10 years old, but 90-something percent of those that live in North Louisiana, Shreveport to Ruston, claim, 96% claim Christianity on some level. And yet, when you look at our city and the values of our city and what we run after and chase after and value, you see this breakdown in head knowledge and in heart knowledge or heart obedience. Now, there's nothing wrong with the hungering for God's word. Like physical food, the answer to physical obesity is not to stop eating altogether. That's not recommended, nor is it possible. The answer is exercise. So what James is saying is if you really have spiritual wisdom, you're not going to be a spiritual glutton. You're going to become someone who takes the wisdom of God, the word of God, applied to our heart, and it's going to work out in what you do. You're going to see character change. Your life is going to increasingly look different. A dichotomy between your life as it's compared or contrasted to the rest of the world. You're going to follow in the spiritual exercises of the faith. So his first thought, if you say of wisdom, you should prove it with your life. His second thought is don't brag about fake wisdom, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. There's a group of people in the early church as well as in our church today that, again, think that they're wise and claim to be wise and give out advice as if it's from some source of wisdom. And James says, oh, hold on a second. Don't claim to be wise just because it's the cool thing to do in the church. Here's the test. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast Be false to the truth. Bitter jealousy, the same word jealousy was used by Jesus when he cleared out the temple. Not bitter jealousy, but jealousy. It's okay to have a righteous jealousy. But this is bitter jealousy used negatively. This is an attitude that happens when a person desires another person's spiritual gifts or or her spouse or their job or their status. Or when looking at their Instagram feed, you're like, man, I want to be that person. They just have just, man, they just have the, man, why can't my life be like that? It seems like everything is going their way. Bitter jealousy. 
And then this word selfish ambition. Again, James is saying these things have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Selfish ambition. Again, having ambition by itself is not bad. It's actually good. First Corinthians 9, Paul uses this idea when comparing the Christian life to that of an athlete. Not competing for a trophy, something that's going to be thrown away one day, but using God-driven ambition and discipline towards godliness. That's a good thing. In verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 9, he says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. But this is not just ambition, ambition being a good thing, selfish ambition. To be blunt, one of the major issues plaguing the American church is a lack of godly ambition. To pursue the face of God and live in obedience to the word of God. Ambition in that regard is needed and wanted. But selfish ambition could also be translated as a party spirit. Or in our terms today, we would call this a clique. Or, right, you know, a a clique, like a, a group of people who thinks that they're better or more right about a topic. And I wish I could say that I've never seen these in church, but they exist everywhere. You know, in, in a church our side, you got the people who are convinced that homeschooling is the only way to go. And so they kind of gather together and pass judgment on these other people. Or people who think Christian school is the only way to go. And so they get together and pass judgment on other people. We, 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 we would never admit to this, but this happens, right? And it happens in our own minds, and our hearts, and if we're not careful, it comes out of our lips in the form of gossip and slander. And James is so upset with this, he says, listen, the church should not be this way. Where you like to feel more righteous than you are, and so you do it at the expense of someone else. Instead of upholding the unity in, in the church, they bring division. This is so dangerous, and it's been in every church that I've ever been in, and it kind of creeps in slowly, but so often if you let those thoughts enter into your mind that I'm better than them because of this, I'm so much wiser than them because of whatever this issue is, then it comes in your mind, and then it begins to poison your heart, and it looks like bitterness, and then it just begins to ooze out of your life and to other people, and if you're not careful, you'll show up at missional community, and you'll kind of just nudge, man, I'm so glad that they're not here. Well, maybe you wouldn't be so bold to say that, but, but maybe you would. It happens around theological differences. We got the Calvinists over here and the cessationists over here and the Arminianists over here and the amillennialists over here and the people who don't know what any of those terms even mean over here. They're like, I just was here to follow Jesus. What's everybody talking about this stuff for? So instead of having a culture of honor, Romans 12, where we try to outdo one another in showing honor, instead we have a culture of selfish ambition where we want to put ourselves above others because of the wisdom. We've got this secret access to understand the wisdom of God and because of that, it has made us so much better. Be careful. What happened to Paul when he had seen such a great revelation? What did he say? To keep me from becoming arrogant, God sent me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan himself. Those who think they have a greater wisdom should be careful. These people in their own pride and selfish ambition, they seek to make others look stupid so they can look righteous, all the while destroying the unity of the church and its impact in a community. In Paul's letter to Titus, he would go as far as saying, hey, listen, you warn a divisive brother once, you warn him a second time, and then you counsel them out of your church, basically because they are only going to bring division. This is not something that that these early church leaders parsed words about. They were very direct. So what are you saying here, James? Don't boast in this kind of wisdom. If these things are in your heart, then don't act like you have true wisdom because you don't, you have a pseudo-wisdom, you have a fake wisdom, a false wisdom, you have 
What you have is your own understanding. The Proverbs said we shouldn't lean on. Don't, have, don't lean on to your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge God. And we wake up every day trying to find this balance of living in this world, but being of another world, being of a different kind. The city of man within this great city of God. And so we have to think that, Jeremiah talks about this, I love this in Jeremiah 9, I don't know if this is on the screen, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. Let's pan out real quickly, and I want you to see what James is contrasting, these two different kinds of wisdom. Well, it's actually one that's actually wisdom, and the other that's a false wisdom or a fake wisdom. And it's kind of all hung on this idea that we see in verse 13. At the end of verse 13, if anyone's wise among you, let his good contact by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness, this idea of humility. It was in last week's talk too, this idea of meekness of wisdom. When we pan out, the result of wisdom is practical and it's observable. Romans 12 says it should be this way, that we should always be being transformed by the renewing of our mind. How will we know that our minds have been renewed? Our lives will be transformed. How will we know if we have wisdom? It will be seen by the way that we live. You know these people in our church. I pray you do. There's three or four people in our church that I want in every meeting because they just have wisdom. And they never have called and told me they had wisdom. They didn't have to do that because we knew that they had wisdom because they proved themselves in meekness to be wise. So as we pan out, James is kind of answering these questions. What's the true source of wisdom? What does it look like? And what does it lead to? What is this source of wisdom? Verse 15 would talk, would compare this idea of, is it of God or from above? Or is it of the world, the flesh, and the devil? What's the source of it? Where does it come from? What does it look like? Or what is its nature? Verse 17, it says that true wisdom, pure, peaceful Meekness and all these other things compared to worldly wisdom that leads to selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and the breakdown of everything. That's what it looks like. It's how you know what it really is. And then what does it lead to? What's the evidence of true wisdom? Verse 13, it leads to a righteous life. It leads to fruitfulness. Godly wisdom does compared to false wisdom or worldly wisdom that just leads to, and I don't know if you saw that as we read through it, the disorder of everything, the breakdown of things as as it was supposed to be and created. You see the breakdown of everything because people begin to lean on their own understanding. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If you want to be a wise person, you need to know God. You need a Bible. This is why last week's talk is so important, and we positioned it before this week's talk. Not just biblical facts, but this relationship with God. Church, what is God saying to you? In the stillness of the moment, when you turn the noise off of your devices, and you you turn the TV off, and I pray you get a few moments like this when you're, Rising or going to bed or intentional times in the morning or at lunch, if your work schedule permits, that you would just stop for just a minute and you would ask God, God, what are you saying to me? God has promised that he would lead us. His Holy Spirit inside of us leading us into truth. He wants to talk to you. He wants to, he's actually got, he's got something he's trying to do in your life. And he didn't want to do it as you're just like this, uh, you know, this uh, uh, blind third party that can't observe it. No, he, he wants this interaction to be with you. He wants to speak with you. And he, and he does bring conviction of sin. And he does expose the motives of our hearts. And he does ask penetrating questions of us. And he's trying to lead us. And he does give us hope. Man, does he give us hope. 
And we see these things, and I don't know if you're there. You can sometimes in the mornings when I'm spending time with the Lord and I've had a rough week or my heart, again, is prone to wander somewhere else or I feel this apathy kind of creeping up on me and I'll just pray, God, I just need you to break through that. I know you're right here with me and I will feel his arms of grace wrap me up and I will be just so attentive to listen. Most of our quiet times, as we call it, or chair times, or your time with the Lord, is us doing all the talking. And we wonder why we don't hear. We've got to develop this rhythm of just listening to God so that we can know where he is leading us. Relationship with God looks like hearing and obeying. So James is asking us these self-diagnostic questions of wisdom. Let me ask you, church, do you have wisdom? If we zoom back in, we look a little more deeply at this text. It really serves as a loud warning. James isn't neutral here. Worldly wisdom will actually, actually get you in a lot of trouble, he's saying. Look at the word he uses to describe the false wisdom. I want you to see the progression. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above or that's from God, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. Earthly, meaning of the flesh. Here it has a negative nuance to it, suggesting a narrow perspective that fails to consider God's realm and God's kingdom. You're just, you know, your mind's just right here in front of you. You you haven't looked up to the hills to see where God's working. You haven't panned out to know that God is the God of the universe that opened his mouth and spoke out everything, that kind of grand vision of God. Instead, we're not living in that world where anything is possible with God. No, we're living in this world where we can only see a few feet in front of us. It's... That's what wisdom, false wisdom is. It's, it's earthly. It's of the flesh. It's the same kind of wisdom the guy had who wanted to build the bigger barns to hold all his stuff. And his mantra was, we'll just eat, drink, and be merry. And in the end, he lost everything. It's earthly wisdom. But it's not just earthly or fleshly. It's unspiritual or natural, maybe your translation says. Meaning the opposite or antithesis of supernatural. It literally means from the soul or from the gut, where we would say, man, I have a gut feeling about this, which could only be a good thing if you're being filled by the Holy Spirit. But these people clearly aren't that James is addressing. It is focusing on the limited aspects of its use where human reason and human logic reign supreme. It's unspiritual. This is, again, he's describing the pseudo-wisdom that people in the church claim to have wisdom, but it's not real wisdom. It's pseudo-wisdom. It's fake wisdom because it's earthly. It's unspiritual. And then he would take it a step further and say it's demonic. The origin of such false wisdom comes from the devil. Satan has certainly planted ideas in people's heads and even people in the midst of the church. He has planted them there like tares among the wheat to cause division to take the church off mission, to bring discouragement, to push the knife in a little deeper, to pour salt on the wound. Maybe you've met some of these people. Maybe you are some of these people. And I'm going to say a few things from my heart. A warning, really, to be very careful when you're giving someone else advice. Many people, when they're at a fork in the road or what's the saying, between a rock and a hard place, they, they go to look to different people for wisdom. And if you're not careful, you normally want to go to the people who agree with you on most things. The best thing that you can tell someone who comes for advice is, you know what, give me a, give me a few hours to pray about that. Because if we just spout out wisdom, there is a very great danger, even for those of us who are Christians, that we're going to be speaking from our own understanding and we have no idea what God's doing. Can you imagine Nehemiah going to some of his buddies? He's got this elevated position in captivity. He's the cupbearer for the king. I mean, you couldn't get, as a a slave, you couldn't get a more honored position. 
you imagine him going to some of his buddies? Hey, listen, I feel like this need to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild this wall. And they would laugh at him. That's ridiculous. If you even ask that of the king, he's going to kill you. You should definitely not do that. That's the dumbest decision we've ever heard, Nehemiah. And you would be counseling him of the devil because God was actually leading him to go do that. This is what Peter did to Jesus. Is Jesus, remember this? Is Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go and die. Peter said, oh, no, 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 you're not. That's not going to happen. What did Jesus say? He didn't beat her in the bush. Get thee behind me, Satan. Use those actual words. Here's the caution. Church, don't let logical thinking trump biblical thinking. That's what Peter was doing. Logical thinking, thought he could give Jesus advice on how this whole thing was going to work out. Peter was thinking logically. Jesus responded appropriately and basically said, hey, you're not, you're not thinking with, uh, with wisdom that's from above. I heard an influential Christian leader on the TV a while back someone that you would know their name, respected in the world of evangelicalism. Someone wrote in and asked them if they were praying about adopting from overseas. And this guy, with everyone assuming would spout forth biblical wisdom, did not do so, but instead used worldly wisdom. And he said, you know what, I don't think anyone should ever adopt from overseas. Because you don't know what kind of trauma those kids are going to have been through. You're not going to, and you bring them here, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy the life as you know it. Again, respected Christian leader. I heard it say it from his words, and I wept. Because that, that is the antithesis of the gospel. What is the gospel? That God has been, he has so lavishly poured his grace and mercy on us and given us his Holy Spirit that we're to plow forward into some of the most difficult spaces, not considering the comfort of my own family but to follow the Holy Spirit wherever he leads. I'm going to get on a soapbox. I'm going to try not to. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. When there's disorder in our families and disorder in our marriages and disorder in our churches and disorder in our heart, we know that it's a sign of false wisdom at work. One of the first signs of false wisdom at work in your own life is when you want to live for your own glory. When you, when you think it's all about you. The Lord's leading you to give some money. You're like, well, if I give that kind of money to these people, then I'm not going to be able to afford the kind of car that I really want. And I'm not going to be able to live in the house that I really want. Well, God leads you to adopt from some foreign country, and you know that it's going to be difficult, and you are literally laying your life on the line for you to think through these selfish things. Like, well, what is this and, and, and that, and how's it going to cost me? When there is disorder and every vile practice, it says in 16, jealousy, selfish ambition, again, disorder and every vile practice just points to we're not getting our information from a God who loves us and knows us perfectly and is asking us to take a step of faith and follow him. My dad planted and pastored many, many churches growing up, and I can remember, even though he tried to protect me from so many of this, to see behind the curtain in some early church, uh, in some traditional maybe church settings of business meetings gone awry. Have you ever been in one of those? For those of you who aren't, you didn't grow up in church, we, at least churches I grew up in, we had these things called business meetings. They were normally on Wednesday nights. And it's the, it's the kind of, it was kind of, if you're in the right place at the right time, you knew it was kind of like your front seat at a Jerry Springer show. I don't know, does that even so on that I've never seen that? Um, maybe I have. Um, where you're just kind of watching, like, what words are going to be said that's going to, and then they got these factions, and normally standing, sitting together, because they've talked about all this beforehand, and 
Most times in the midst of every church split, every church division, every church fuss, every divorce, every marital issue, at the source of it is someone getting really selfish and really proud and they're going to dig in their heels. They're going to cause a big stink. All because they're not listening to the Holy Spirit. Those that walk by faith will always be opposed by those who walk by sight. Always. Most people walk away from churches, marriages, make terrible decisions. Not every time, but a lot of times. Because they've convinced themselves that they are right and the others are wrong. But in contrast to that, look at verse 17. In contrast to the results of false or fake wisdom, here's the result of true wisdom, or at least what it produces. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Notice the the resemblance to Paul's text in Galatians 5 on the fruits of the Spirit, humility, peace, upright behavior, focus of both of these texts. In a general sense, Paul claims what the Spirit produces. James claims true wisdom produces, and this makes sense. When James is writing this, he didn't have a full understanding of the necessary of the Holy Spirit's work, but also the fruit of the Spirit is what comes from the Spirit-filled life. Similarly, when one looks to God for wisdom and walks in wisdom, his life resembles that of one that is controlled by the Holy Spirit. So we see these two things as they overlap. I want to just talk about each one just briefly, the pure. This is the absence of sinful motives or attitudes. It's the opposite of the self-seeking attitude that we talked about earlier in verses 14 to 16. Then it's peaceable. This is the wisdom that comes from God that should be displayed in our life. It should be peaceable. That we would love peace and not drama. In contrast with the bitter spirit of competitiveness and selfish ambition, talked about in verse 14, someone who genuinely has the word of God alive in their hearts, they want peace in the family and not division. It's peaceable. It's gentle, considerate, some translations say. It's used elsewhere to describe God's character as gentle and considerate. When he has every right to be stern and harsh, yet he is kind and gentle with us. God's people should be marked with this godlike quality, not insisting on their rights according to the letter of the law, but exercising love's leniency instead. As scripture says, love covers a multitude of wrongs. It's reasonable or open to reason. Submissive, maybe your translation says. So instead of being self-seeking, truism prepares us with a readiness to yield to others. To yield to others. I went with a bunch of uh, self-professed nines on the Enneagram on a trip last week to Houston. Took us an hour and a half to decide where we wanted to go eat. Everybody was like, well, we'll go where you want to go eat. We'll go where you want to go eat. Like, I'm just making a decision. That, that restaurant's close enough, and we're going there. When we meet in our missional communities. For those of you who are not a part of our church, you're only seeing kind of a small part of what we do as a church. We have community groups, small groups. We call them missional communities. They engage with each other as family to do the mission of God. And this is where you see this at work or not at work. Because you put these different sinners in a living room. And you've got to make all kind of decisions together. And you see true wisdom, I love this, that it yields to one another. Just, you know what? You don't like this thing, and this is something I'm passionate about, and you hate something I'm passionate about, but that's okay. You know what? I'm going to yield to you. I'm going to sacrifice my preferences for unity. So this was such a burning thing on the heart of Jesus. Go read John 17 as he cries out that the church, not just Covenant Church, but that the church, capital C Church of Jesus, all the churches in our area, that we would have this one heartbeat, that we're going to reach our area for Christ. We're going we're to even yield to others. 
We're not going to stand and insist on our own rights, but yielding to one another. Man, I wish we, that's a whole sermon. I've got to get going. It's reasonable or submissive. This understanding that I can be wrong and I submit willingly. The next, it's full of mercy or merciful. It's working so that others receive the best. If they, even if they don't deserve the best. Man, is that not preaching the gospel to ourselves? Working so others receive the best, even if they don't deserve it. You know, so that person in your mission community has a baby or has a hard time, and you're like, man, I'd like to go bring a meal to them, but they never brought a meal to me. As a matter of fact, they don't even show up to this thing. I don't even know if they're even a part of this group. Are they a part of this group? Am I obligated to bring them and care for them? Well, godly wisdom would say yes. We're working so they receive the best even when they don't deserve the best. That good fruits, again, the fruit of the Spirit we could talk about. We don't have time for that. They're impartial, unwavering, the uh, NASB says, this idea of loyalty, loyal to what is right, not what might benefit me or what feels good in the moment. I'm loyal to Christ and his mission. And because I'm loyal to Christ and his mission, I make sacrifices of things that I really want to do, but I don't do because I've yielded to Christ and his mission. sincere, meaning without hypocrisy, meaning that if you walk with God, you don't have to force your way into these things. The Holy Spirit is literally pushing you to want these things. And sometimes you do these things or you write a really big check to something that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And you're like, man, that's not me. That could have went to my 401k or a big hunting trip. Like, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. He's changing me. I do, I I want to mention this real quick. Consider how these characterizations of wisdom in James, maybe James had heard these before, overlap with the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Pure. I think I have these. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Peaceable. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Gentle. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Open to reason. Blessed are the poor in spirit. See that yielding? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Full of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Full of good fruit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Jesus, of course, didn't just preach these things. He lived them. He was pure and peaceable and gentle. And open to reason and full of mercy and full of good fruit. And no matter what they did to Jesus, it just seemed to pour out of him again and again. Ultimately, Jesus would give his very life for those who were his enemy. There is no greater picture of the love of God than to see Jesus Christ coming from heaven. Wrapping himself in flesh. Willingly. What does it say? That he was silent before his accusers. Being nailed to the cross, shedding his blood, and praying from that very cross, Father, forgive them. What does he say? For they don't know what they're doing. Their wisdom is coming from the wrong place. God, would you show mercy to them and forgive them? This last verse in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He uses the agriculture illustration of seeds and crops. If you want righteousness, you sow seeds of righteousness. If you want unity in the body, you sow seeds of peace. And as we do this thing together, called Covenant Church, as we're committed to our missional communities and living out this mission of God in smaller groups and being family to one another and growing as disciples to one another, there's going to be these things that come up again. And man, I would encourage you, don't lean on your own understanding, but look at the way of Jesus, who had a preference as he's in the garden and he's praying, God, deliver me from this, but ultimately not my will, but yours. When people are controlled by the Holy Spirit, the result is peace. And when you get a church together who are adamant about going after peace, you have a church that's unified.
And when you have a church that's unified, we have set the sail for the Holy Spirit to bring this incredible revival to our area. Sowing seeds of peace leads to a harvest of righteousness. My prayer for our church is that we would have a culture of peace and honor in our church. Not according to worldly wisdom, but as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will want to honor one another. When we show up, we won't say, man, I can't believe that they're here. But we would be in awe at the person that God has made. We show up at missional community, oh man, Tim's here. I love Tim. Man, created in the image of God. Or Katie's here. Or whoever it might be that we would honor them. We would have a culture here of honoring each other. There's some personalities that don't get along. That's okay. We can still honor them. And not just honor them in like some way to appease yourself. But to outdo others in showing honor. And that kind of culture is absent in America today. Or at least it's rare. And to see it, what a great apologetic it would be to the watching world. Let me end with this question, and we're going to do communion in a minute. What kind of wisdom is working itself out in your life? Of the two lists, is it the selfish ambition and envy, earthly and unspiritual and demonic? Is it that wisdom where you lean it on your own understanding or living by the mantra to do what feels right? Or is it that one of pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable, merciful, abounding with good fruit. This is really ultimately a question of trust, of weight. Where are you placing the weight of your faith? Is it on your own understanding or is it in the words of God? I want to give you some time just to pray. I'm going to be quiet here in a minute, and I I pray the Holy Spirit speaks to you. I I pray he's already spoken to you. I pray this, he would reveal, before I even preach, I pray that he would reveal to you some parts of your heart where you're not trusting what God is saying. Instead, you're trusting your own understanding. I pray that he would bring conviction there. Some of you in this room are probably not even part of God's family, and I've been praying for you. Praying today would be a day where you would take a step of faith. You would cross this line of faith from unbelief to belief. You probably don't have all your questions figured out, and neither do I, but the Holy Spirit illuminating truth to you today, even as the Word of God was read and preached and sung. And you know that He's, he's nudging you to take a step of faith. Be part of his family. Some of you, it's a decision to lock arms with this local body. You've been attending for a while, and today's a day. You feel the nudge of the Holy Spirit that you would take a step of faith. Maybe it's something he's leading you to give up, something that you love. He's leading you to give that up so that you would put him first in that. Maybe some of you have been sitting on the sidelines for a long time and it's really just time to get in the game. His nudge to your heart this morning is just to trust him and take a step of faith. Show up at a missional community or sign up for some sort of team or invite your neighbor over that you don't know, that you kind of don't like. Just invite them over and be the love of Jesus to them. Giving them the best even though they don't deserve it. Just as Jesus gave us his best when we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. This is what we celebrate with communion. You don't have to be a member of our church to take communion, just the bread and dip it into the drink and partake of it. You do have to be a member of God's family. I love that communion illustrates these two things to us.
we're a body sharing the same loaf. But we've been purchased with the blood of Jesus as we dip it into the juice and take it. God, I pray for your people. Lord, your church is not my church. This is your church. And you are our chief shepherd. We humbly kneel before you and in desperation we ask you that you would continue to lead us as a church. Will you bring conviction in our lives where where we've been apathetic, where we've let sin creep in, where we've been so frustrated by someone else that we break unity with them? Lord, we see the world going in a pretty bad direction, at least our our nation. But we pray that your church would take its place, that we should of pointing people to you as we love each other, care for each other, and honor each other in a way that blesses you. Or bless your people today in Jesus' name, amen. Our communion servers are here when you're ready. Take as much time to pray as you would like to. I'm going to ask our prayer team if they would stand around the back. If you want someone to pray with, I'll be back there as well. You Feel free to come pray. Feel free to take the hand of a spouse or family member or friend right where you sit and pray in unison together that God would begin to change your hearts, that we would display this kind of good fruit that he speaks of. Do what God's leading you to do.